Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden putting politics aside to comfort hurricane victims. The leap starts right now. First-hand look, the president visits areas hard hit by Ian, meeting with families who've lost everything. Plus, the emotional return for families of Sanibel Island, one week since Ian's landfall. Also, the so-called Havana Syndrome, the CIA sources blasting the agency, going to Congress to beg for help investigating this mysterious illness. What they're asking for in a CNN exclusive. And they're Democrats, Republicans, business leaders, and moms the historic year for women on the ballot in 2022. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Casey Hunt, in today for Jake Tapper. We begin this hour with President Biden getting a first-hand look at the catastrophic damage caused by Hurricane Ian in Florida. A short time ago, he made it clear the federal government is committed to helping the state, which he predicts will take years to recover. Earlier in his visit, he also met with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who briefed him on the destruction. The two men on opposite ends of the political spectrum, but cordial today, the president praising the governor for his recovery efforts. Biden's visit comes as the U.S. death toll from Hurricane Ian rises again to at least 110 people killed. Search and rescue teams are still working nonstop to find survivors. For the first time today, residents and business owners from Sanibel Island are allowed to return but only to survey the damage. They can't stay. And local officials warn that conditions on the island are extremely unsafe. You'll recall that Hurricane Ian wiped out parts of the causeway connecting Sanibel Island to the mainland. Governor Ron DeSantis has ordered state officials to prioritize repairing the bridge. The bridge connecting nearby Pine Island to the mainland was also damaged. The governor announced today that residents can once again access the island via a temporary drawbridge. Let's begin with CNN's Randy Kay, who was on Sanibel Island earlier today. Randy, what waits for residents and business owners as they come home to Sanibel? A mess, Casey. Honestly, uh, it really is a mess there. Uh, we took a boat along with a couple of residents. Uh, they had to hire this boat driver, uh, Captain Brandon, because they can't get to the island uh, without a boat or possibly a helicopter or an airplane because of that causeway being destroyed by Hurricane Ian. So we took this boat with them. These are two women in their 60s. Uh, by the time we got there to the island, they had to climb off the boat. You can only get so far. And then we had to walk. Uh, conditions were very primitive. We had to walk about a mile to their home. And again, they didn't know what to expect. They were very nervous the whole boat ride. They were very emotional. And you could see as you're walking, there were uh, cars on the side of the road turned upside down. There were uh, beach resorts that were destroyed, mattresses on the street. There was a, 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 a door from a women's restroom that had come from blocks away in their backyard as we approached their house. Uh, their pool was destroyed. We finally, after about an hour of trying to get their hurricane shutters off because they're, uh, they're done with power and there wasn't any power, we went inside the upper floor, fine. So they thought maybe they had had a reprieve. They get downstairs, though, in their lower level, and it was destroyed. There was mud and muck. The smell was horrific. There was mold. And you could see the water line on the wall was at about six feet high. 
So that's how much water there was. Their refrigerator in their lower room was on its side on the counter. It had moved and floated in the water and was on the counter. Here's what Vicki Pascal had to say uh, when we spoke to her outside there. Expected the devastation on the ground floor. That was a given. Um, I slept 30 minutes last night thinking the back of the house fell off. The upstairs was flooded out as well. I think we ended up being a little more fortunate than some other people. Yeah, we have a lot of damage. We have a lot of work to do. But I don't believe our house is unlivable at some point. And Casey, unfortunately for them, that lower ground floor is uninsurable. That's how it works on Sanibel Island. So all of that mess, all of that muck, they lost their Mini Cooper, which was in the garage, completely flooded out. That is all on them. There is no insurance, no flood insurance for that, Casey. That's just devastating. So, Randy, when do authorities expect that these people are going to actually be able to go home on a more permanent basis? Well, for those who have homes left, uh, they it's going to be a while. I mean, right now they have to get off the island by seven. They were just allowed to go and collect a few things, uh, and then they would have to they have to leave the island right away. So they can't walk around there or show people around. Uh, but we know that the governor is working uh, to try and get this causeway repaired, at least a temporary uh, fix for it uh, by October or in the in that range. So by the end of October, I should say. So. Uh, that is the plan. Um, so residents are, are very, very anxious to see if that actually happens because many of them want to go home, Casey. Of course they do. Randy Kay, reporting live from Naples, Florida. Thanks so much for that report. We're going to turn now, though, to our money lead. There is a pretty strong chance that you're about to pay more to fill up your gas tank. OPEC Plus, that's a group of major oil producers that includes Saudi Arabia and Russia, just announced the biggest cut to oil production since the start of the pandemic. And this is the opposite of what the Biden administration have lobbied for. The White House today called the decision short-sighted and a mistake and said it would hurt low- and middle-income countries already struggling with rising energy prices. It also bodes, poor, bodes poorly for President Biden in the quickly approaching midterm elections. Here to discuss is Brian Deese, the director of the National Economic Council at the White House. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, this production cut will almost certainly drive gas and energy prices higher. It could increase fears of a global recession. What is the president's message to households that are already barely getting by? Well, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a short-sighted decision, and the reason is because the dominant challenge we continue to face in the global economy and global oil markets is constraints on supply as a direct result of Putin's invasion in Ukraine and the supply constraints that that has put on. And so we have consistently been encouraging every actor, be it oil-producing countries and others, to support adequate supply on the global market. At the same time, uh, with respect to U.S. consumers, we've made a lot of progress over the course of the last couple of months. Gas prices are down about a dollar and twenty cents. Uh, the the most common price for gas today in the United States in in is three dollars and twenty nine cents. That's down quite a bit. Um, They're and still we going have back progress. up. Though. Well, we they 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 have they've stabilized in uh, in in different parts of the country. Some are going down. Some are going up. We still have more to go if energy companies actually reduce those retail prices, the prices that consumers pay, 
to align with the wholesale prices that they are actually paying. Right now, there is a historically large gap between those two. We need energy companies to reduce that gap so that consumers aren't actually bearing the brunt of that. Um, and we're going to look at other things that we can do uh, as well. Uh, but um, but the, you know we are going to keep focused on doing everything that we can to make sure that this progress that we've seen in terms of gas prices coming down can sustain wherever it can. So on that point, sources tell CNN that the White House pushed allies very hard to try and stop this slash in oil production. One U.S. official said that the White House was, quote, having a spasm and panicking, their words. Um, CNN also obtained some draft White House talking points this week that called this possible production cut a, quote, total disaster and warned it could represent a hostile act. Why didn't any of this work? And what do you say to people who look at that and say, do you have this under control? Well, look, uh, we've made our views clear to uh, OPEC countries uh, and other uh, countries. We'll continue to do that. Uh, I think if you look at what this president and our administration has done since Putin began amassing troops on the border of Ukraine, what it shows is an unprecedented effort to rally a global coalition to meet that aggression and say the world will not stand by uh, on that type of aggression. And at the same time, we'll use all of the tools at our disposal to have adequate supply of energy globally. And as I've mentioned, uh, those actions, including our historic use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to release a million barrels of the day into the market, has had an impact. Uh, oil prices are down significantly from where they were earlier in the summer. And as a result, gas prices are down as well. We're going to keep at that and we're going to keep at that while maintaining this global coalition. We have to stand up for, to, to Putin's aggression and we have to maintain the coalition to do that. So speaking of the coalition and the actions that the, the president has taken, especially uh, abroad, it has been less than three months since the president went to Saudi Arabia. He had that controversial meeting with the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And you today said the trip was not a waste of time. And the White House has said in the past that the trip wasn't about oil. But there was one tangible delivery uh, that Biden brought home from that. This OPEC move basically cancels it out. I mean, does the president regret making that trip to Saudi Arabia? The president's intention in making that trip was to represent U.S. national interests. That's what he did. Uh, and we saw that that uh, that bore results across a broad array of issues, including security issues, including representing Israel's uh, interests in the region. Uh, and so that's what the president is going to continue to do. The president, wherever he sees an opportunity to represent and advance U.S. national interests, national security interests and economic interests, he's going to continue to do that. With respect to the thing that a lot of American families are most focused on, which is the price at the pump uh, and the overall costs that they're facing, you've got a president and administration that are waking up every day focused like a laser on doing what we can to try to uh, bring down those prices. As I said, we have made progress on gas prices. There's more we can do there. And we can uh, make more progress on bringing down other prices for American families as well, like prescription drugs and health care costs, where we're going to make progress this month. So that's the president's focus, representing the national interest, representing the interest of American families. That's what he's going to keep doing. All right. Brian Deese from the National Economic Council. Thanks very much for your time today, sir. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, the United show of force in response to North Korea and its recent series of missile launches, including a warning today from the U.S. Plus... The power of the October surprise. Can dirt on a candidate really change the trajectory of a race? We'll dig into that coming up. Topping our worldly, a flurry of military activity in Asia after North Korea's belligerent missile launch yesterday, which soared over Japan and ignited widespread panic. 
Now, South Korea, Japan, and the United States are doing military exercises. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports, the three world powers are flexing their military might. The U.S. and allies responding to North Korea's latest missile test with shows of unity and firepower. Joint aerial and ground exercises with Japan, fighter jets in the sky, with South Korea launching long-range precision rockets designed to remind Kim Jong-un what he could be facing. To make sure that we have the military capabilities at the ready uh, to respond to provocations by the North if it comes to that. Now, it shouldn't come to that. We've made it clear to Kim Jong-un we're willing to sit down with no preconditions. The launch prompting the U.S. to call for an emergency Security Council meeting at the United Nations today. We can and must return to a time when we spoke with a unified voice against the DPRK's malign behavior. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken today calling North Korea's actions dangerous and reckless. We've called on the DPRK to refrain from further provocations and engage in a sustained and substantive dialogue. This is something that we've proposed going back many months. If they continue down this road, it will only increase the condemnation, increase the isolation, increase the steps that are taken uh, in response to their actions. North Korea has carried out a flurry of missile tests this year, 23 so far. The latest on Tuesday, flying almost 3,000 miles or 4,600 kilometers right over Japan for the first time in five years, a major provocation and escalation. They don't care if people are angry about it. Uh, They know what they want to do, and I think they're pretty dead set on doing it. Kim's meetings with former President Donald Trump proving little help in slowing North Korea's missile and nuclear development. He believes that these are the things that safeguard his regime. Uh, And so I think that he is both talking that talk, but he's walking that walk, going on about his business of building up his nuclear arsenal. The White House says that there has been no response to their offer to sit down with no preconditions, nor uh, is there any indication that they plan to denuclearize, Casey. In fact, quite the opposite. Analysts believe that we could soon see a new nuclear test by North Korea. One analyst telling me that it could happen at any time. Casey. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks very much for that report. And sources tell CNN the U.S. intelligence community believes a car bombing that killed the daughter of a prominent Russian political figure back in August was authorized from within parts of the Ukrainian government. The New York Times was the first to report this. Right now, it's still unclear exactly who signed off on the assassination and if Ukrainian President Zelensky was aware of the plan. Ukraine previously denied any involvement and has not responded to CNN's request for comment. Meanwhile, Putin's forces are losing more land in Ukraine. For the first time since Russia's invasion, Ukrainian forces are advancing into the eastern Luhansk region, where a Russian correspondent embedded on the front lines admits Putin's army doesn't have the, quote, manpower. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in southern Ukraine in a town littered with Russia's military relics and bodies of Putin's soldiers. A warning here. Some of the images you're about to see are disturbing. We don't leave our own behind. A Russian war slogan you hear less these days, especially along the road south by the Dnipro River, where the Russians seem to be collapsing since the weekend on yet a third front. The pace of Ukraine's advance you can feel on the roads here, and it is hour by hour that they move forwards, this road lined with Russian bodies 
abandoned Russian positions. It's clear people left here in a hurry. In just the last three days, they've swept along the west bank of the river through Russian positions, the shallow, shabby foxholes of an army with almost nothing at hand. Even what little they had was abandoned, especially this tank, a model that first came into service 60 years ago when Vladimir Putin was nine. Here, the village of Mikolaevka, right on the river, is getting cell phone service for the first time in six months and aid. Shells slammed into here 90 minutes ago from the Russians still across the water. It's the price of their freedom. The Russians would check on us, she says, tried to make us vote in the referendum, but we didn't. Still, we survived. We old people always have food supplies. Outside the village are more of the short-lived occupation, left in the tree line with a sleeping mat and shells. In nearby Lubomivka, there was heavy fighting Saturday, and then Sunday, the Russians just vanished. Gratitude for aid and liberation going spare to almost anyone. Smiles and it is over, and shock at how fast. It was very scary. We were afraid, she says, hiding. They were bombing, robbing. We survived. They ran, the rain came, and they ran. Signs all around of how their unwanted guests just did not know what to do when they got here. Or have food or beds. So they filled that gap with cruelty. Andrei had a generator and would charge locals' phones. So the Russians decided he was Ukrainian informer and beat him. They brought me from here and they put a hood on my head and taped it up, he says. Then we walked a few steps up and down. They beat him so badly, his arms turned blue from defending his head, still there months later. Stalemate had torn these huge expanses up for months. Now it's broken, as has the fear of the Kremlin's army here. Bereft, abandoned, filthy and vanishing down the road. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, along the Dnipro River, Kherson region, Ukraine. Our thanks to Nick for that report. Up next here, the huge year for women on the ballot and the key issues pushing their campaigns. In our politics lead, is 2022 the year of the woman? It might be. This year, a record 25 women are running for governor. CNN's Kyung Law tracks these historic races and the one qualification that many of these female candidates are touting, the fact that they're moms. Arizona Republican nominee for governor Carrie Lake pitches her conservative credentials. I do not like this woke garbage. And her own identity. You do not want to mess with a middle-aged mama who's pissed off. I love it. Women solve problems. We get things done. I am Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Running for the Democrats, Katie Hobbs. Her platform, defending abortion rights and democracy. 
one of the biggest threats to our elections is the campaign of misinformation and disinformation. Two women uh, vying to be Arizona's top state executive in what is a historic year for women running for governor. Lake and Hobbs are among a record 25 women nominated by major parties, 16 Democrats and nine Republicans. And in five states, women are facing off for the governor's mansion more than in all of U.S. history. We've seen more and more women do that successfully and more women running for these positions with less of that traditional pushback about whether or not they can do the job. I will do everything in my power as a woman, as a Michigander, and as your governor to protect women's reproductive rights in Michigan. In Michigan, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer leans on her identity as part of her defense of abortion rights, while Republican challenger Tudor Dixon fuses her gender into attacks against the incumbent. This is going to be an epic battle between a conservative businesswoman and mother and a far-left birthing parent and career politician. My name is Tina Kotek. In Oregon, three different appeals from three women vying for the governor's mansion. Democrat Tina Kotek. And then there were some other words for tough. That women get called. <clears throat> Republican I'm Christine Drazen. And I'm running for governor. But more importantly, I'm a mom. And independent Betsy Johnson. This daughter of Oregon won't give up on the state I love. It's a particularly good year for women running for governor. That said, all will hinge on how many of these women ultimately win. You can call me Trump in address any day. These nominees for governor are shifting the landscape on running to be the state's top political boss. In Arizona, Lake has attacked her opponent using language that a man would be called sexist for. She came out last week with the mask over her face. Actually, that might be a good look for her. Her rhetoric is continuing to ramp up violent threats and harassment against me, and I don't think that's really a gender thing. Pointed attacks as women are poised to make history. Well, what does this say about the state of women leadership right now in politics? I, I think it's fantastic. I'm, I call it the mama bear movement, which is happening right now. You see the mama bears saying, wait a minute, we need to get involved at the school board level because we don't like what's being taught to our children. We need to get involved in Congress because we need to uh, impact change for America. The numbers of women nominees for the U.S. Senate and the House is actually lower in 2022 than it was in 2020. So it's in the governor's races that we're really seeing some progress when it comes to women nominees. And it's also in the governor's mansions that you see a potential pipeline to the U.S. presidency, which has remained the ultimate glass ceiling in politics. Casey? That, that it has. Kim Law, thanks very much for that. Let's discuss here with our panel. Thank you all for being here. Um, Kirsten, let me start with you. Um, this is, as Kim laid out, a historic year for female candidates, but we can't necessarily have that conversation without talking about abortion, which is uh, you know, one of the foremost uh, issues that's really going to be uh, on the ballot in so many ways. Um, this new campaign ad um, from a Louisiana congressional candidate named Katie Darling. She's running against Steve Scalise, so it's a long shot. Uh, but let me just show you the video because you'll understand why it's worth watching. Take a look. Louisiana deserves better than the path we're on. I'm Katie Darling, and I'm running for Congress because I want that better path. For you, for her, and for him. 
So I'm not going to lie. I would not be brave enough <laughs> if I were running for office to include footage from that event in my campaign ad. Um, but what do you make of that? And, and how do you think these two issues go together, women candidates uh, and issues that, that clearly our polling shows women care so much about? Yeah, well, I think it's something that's obviously going to has very much activated women and activated uh, Democratic voters and some independent voters that lean Democratic. It's not necessarily the top issue for everybody. The economy and crime are, are ranking very highly. But I think the reason that she did, in fact, she said this, the reason that she wanted to do this is that there's this idea that conservatives put out that if you're pro-choice, if you're pro-abortion rights, that you aren't pro-children or pro-having babies. And then, in fact, the two things very much go together. She's somebody who had health issues and was very concerned about what would happen to her, that she could potentially die from having a child, was afraid to give birth in Louisiana, and decided to run for office. So I think she's highlighting those issues that um, many of the women uh, who end up having abortions, in fact, are people who have children. Yeah. And so, so I think that's an important thing for people to understand, that you can be both things. You can be both pro-abortion rights and pro-children and, and babies and families. Alice, I mean, how do you react to that? Because I, I will say, I mean, as, as someone who's, you know, in my 30s, I know a lot of people who are going through this kind of thing. And there are things that are classified as abortion care that women who desperately want to have a baby are, are utilizing and need in their day-to-day health care. I mean, how does that play into the politics of this? Look, clear the, the pro-life issue has been front and center for galvanizing Republicans and conservatives ever since Roe v. Wade was, was put into place. And for 50 years, this has really turned out voters. What we have seen, and there's no denying the fact that since Roe v. Wade has been overturned, it has galvanized and turned out more women and men as well uh, to support uh, liberal candidates and Democratic candidates. But what I expect to see in the next five weeks as we get closer to these midterm elections, women also are concerned with pocketbook issues, with the economy the way it is and inflation and crime and education all in a flux. Women are going to steer towards candidates that are focused on those issues. The, the, the economy is top of mind. Look, the, the abortion has galvanize some women, but overall they are not single-issue voters and the economy is a big issue. Just one, one thought on that. You know, on, on polling about whether abortion should be legal, there really isn't much of a gender gap anymore. I mean, men and women are, are very similar on that. But Democrats do have, the gender gap is significant in the polling on the races themselves this year. I mean, we are seeing a wide, just about every Senate and gubernatorial race, you're seeing a substantial gender, uh, a gender gap between women being much more de- pro-democratic than, than men. Also, a significant generation gap. Younger uh, than 45, Democrats are running very well over the, older than 45. So it's interesting. I mean, the, the salient, the, 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 the view on the legality of abortion isn't that difference, but the view on the salience does seem to be. I mean, and it does seem to be. How much does it matter? To how much does it matter? to you. And it is it is moving more women voters, I think, than men voters, even though the underlying position isn't that different. Right. Yeah. So let's let's dig into a specific race where this has become a thing. And I know, Ron, it'll be great to get your perspective because you're back, back yeah. from Georgia. And Tia, you cover this extensively. This morning, Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker was on Fox and Friends and he responded to this reporting from The Daily Beast that said he paid for his girlfriend to get an abortion and uh, to respond to attacks from his own son calling him a liar. Watch. Have you figured out who it is? Uh, Not at all. And that's what uh, I hope everyone can see. It's sort of like everyone is anonymous or everyone is leaking. What do you say about your son? Is he telling the truth? Well, I love my son unconditionally, and that's where I've always been. Do you know why he's saying this? Well, the damage he's doing is letting people know that the left will do whatever they can to win the seat. 
Okay, so Tia, I think we should point out, first of all, that Christian Walker, his son, is actually a pretty well-known conservative. Right. Um, the allegation that he leveled at his dad is that you're lying. You can't pretend to be a moral family man. And he details some of the, the things that he says he went through when he was a kid. I mean, what do you take away from that response? And are voters going to buy it? Yeah, I think so. I think there are some voters who are prepared to vote for Herschel Walker no matter what. You know, um, I don't know what he could do to turn them off at this point, because for them, the importance is getting more Republicans in to push that Republican uh, Christian agenda that they really want and that Herschel Walker has said he will embrace, regardless of whatever we believe about his personal life. He said if he was going to come to Senate, he would do these things. And a lot of voters, especially on the Republican side, think it's important. I do think where voters could start to care is if they start to believe that they can't trust him. And we know that trust and feeling like a candidate is telling you the truth does resonate with voters, particularly on the right, when it's about these moral and these personal issues. And that's where his son, more so than the reporting, his son's reaction to the reporting, it's tough. We see Herschel Walker really not addressing the no. things his son has I mean, that's said. a tough thing to hear from your own father, yeah. what he, the way he responded there. What I think is really important to note moving forward is that, sure, this is a personal issue that he is answering to and he is denying it. Republican voters in Georgia and re- voters across the country... What I'm hearing, I'm from Georgia, I'm a Georgia bulldog, and what people are saying to me, they're not as concerned about what is happening in his personal life, but what is he going to do politically? And they're saying they support the fact that he is uh, all about uh, fighting inflation, uh, talking about uh, the economy and fighting crime. All the other and, issues. And there's a, there's a reason why the campaign, has, ra- the campaign has raised sorry. half a million dollars in the last two days since this came out because Republicans across the board support his policies and they want to Yeah, but Alice, I've sat here with you and I've heard you talk about what abortion is and what you believe abortion is and you believe it's the killing of a baby. And that's what these people say. So you're saying that they care more about those things than what they claim to believe that abortion is the killing of a baby and they're willing to overlook it? I'm like, there's something that doesn't add up here. Well, I mean, but I think that's what we've known yeah, all along. Yeah, well, no. well, uh, look, we know that the general trend is that our elections are becoming more parliamentary. They're less about individuals, more about which party you want to see control, not so much about the name on the back of the jersey. Which jersey more, you wear. Yeah, more about the color on the front of the jersey. <laughs> but having said that, not all voters are there. And in a state like Georgia that is as closely divided, even a few voters saying this is just something that I will be embarrassed about by my senator could make the difference. Similar to what we're seeing in Arizona or Pennsylvania, where the the Republican candidates are laboring under high personal negatives. Yes, there are voters who will vote for them anyway because they want Republicans to control. But is that enough to get you over the top? And that's a big, big hill to climb. Saran, just quickly, I mean, we've talked so much over the years about October surprises. Apparently, this allegation was floating out there in Georgia political circles like months, if not years, and people knew about it. So why, why is it reported now? Interesting, the reporter who broke it said today that he's not sure what he found is the allegation that has been floating out there and that there may be yet uh, another story out there. Look, October surprises are at this point no surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. All right, guys, thank you very much for this conversation. We really appreciate having you today. Ahead, that mysterious illness known as Havana syndrome. Sources say the CIA isn't doing enough to investigate it. In a CNN exclusive, how they're trying to get action. Next. And we're back with our buried lead, stories we feel aren't getting enough attention. This just into CNN. Sources describe friction at the CIA. Dozens of current and former officers are desperate for answers about Havana syndrome. 
CNN's Sanjay Gupta dove into the mysterious illness in his special report, Immaculate Concussion. Listen to a CIA doctor describe it. I was awakened with severe pain in my right ear. I had a lot of nausea and a terrible headache, and I never suffered from headaches before. The amount of ringing in my ears was just astounding, and things were getting worse and worse and worse. And I started to hear the noise, and I'm really in disbelief. Let's bring in CNN's Katie Bo Lillis and Kylie Atwood, who worked on uh, this reporting. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Katie Bo, how are these CIA officers trying to raise the alarm about what's going on here? Yeah, so Casey, what we have learned is that as many as three dozen current and former CIA officers have traveled to Capitol Hill over the past year to raise concerns with the intelligence committees that the CIA task force that is supposed to be investigating who or what might be causing these strange episodes isn't doing enough. They're raising concerns that the task force isn't aggressively following up on leads, that it's not being aggressive enough in its overall investigation. And some of them have been concerned enough that they have lodged formal whistleblower complaints with Congress. What makes this so hard, Casey, is that officials who are familiar with the task force work and with the intelligence community's investigation overall, they say they just don't have any good answers at this point. There's about two dozen of these cases that the intelligence community just hasn't been able to explain by any other known means. Hmm. And officials who are familiar with the investigation are, are telling us that, look, at this point, they just don't have any really solid evidence either linking any of these cases to a foreign government or even good proof that any one of these cases is caused by the same thing that the next one is caused by. This is super, super frustrating for victims, many of whom are having some pretty uncomfortable flashbacks to kind of the early months and years after the first of these um, cases first began appearing when they say they felt gaslit by the Trump administration. Mm, Really, really interesting. And Kylie, we learned Sanjay talked about this a little bit in his reporting that these symptoms, they can last for years. I mean, this isn't something that you just that, that seems to go away. Has the government been doing anything to help people who are struggling with this currently? Yeah, so by law, the government is now required to compensate them. And we've learned that earlier this year, the CIA began compensating some victims. We're now learning that the State Department is in the process of doing so. A senior State Department official said that there are about a dozen diplomats and their family members who are victims who have applied to get compensated. And what they'll get is either $140,000 or $187,000. That's based on the severity of their symptoms. And they have to have received medical attention for at least a year to even be considered qualified to receive this compensation. Of course, compensation is one thing, but what these victims are also saying is they don't want the U.S. government to forget about this, right? It's not just about the money for them. Which is pay me and forget. Yeah, it's about flexibility at work. It's about continued support as they continue experiencing what are uh, the after effects of these attacks. And you talked to one victim that developed a really rare form of cancer. Is there a sense that that's connected? There is no direct correlation, but this was someone who was a victim, a Havana syndrome victim. They developed this kind of cancer, which is associated with exposure to microwave or radiation. And the reason that that's concerning is because there was a panel of experts, of scientists earlier this year who said that that uh, pulse microwave energy is one of the things that could have been the cause of these incidents. So the fact that this person has now developed this uh, kind of cancer is creating a lot of concern among victims who are saying, what are going to be the long-term effects for me? They really just don't have answers to that right now. The implications of the fact that this is happening and that we can't figure it out are just 
astonishing. Katie Bolillis, Kylie Atwood, thanks very much for your great reporting. We really appreciate it. Coming up next, the alarming factors leading an overwhelming number of people to say America has a mental health crisis on its hands. In our health lead, 90% of Americans agree that mental health is a crisis in the United States. That's according to a new CNN poll with the Family Kaiser Foundation, Kaiser Family Foundation. But why is this number so high? I want to bring in CNN's Dr. Tara Narula. Uh, Tara, it's good to see you. I, what issues did people in this poll specifically point to as a crisis? Right, Casey. Well, this was a survey of about 2,000 adults in America over the summer, and they identified not just a problem, but really what were crisis situations. They, over two-thirds highlighted the opioid epidemic as being a crisis. Um, over 50% talked about mental health in kids and teens and also severe mental illness in adults. About uh, 45%, not surprisingly, highlighted anxiety and depression as a crisis. And this was what was interesting to me. 39% talked about stress or anxiety from politics and 25% mentioned loneliness. In addition, the survey found that one in three described feeling anxious over the prior year, 20% had felt depressed or lonely or even had missed work because of a mental health issue. Hmm. So really not, not a great picture of what's going on right now. Pretty dire. What are some of the barriers that people encounter when they try to get access to mental health care and how do we fix it? That's really the important question. And there are a lot of barriers. First and foremost, 80% identified cost. Um, if you've talked to anybody who tries to see a therapist, many times the cost is in the hundreds of dollars. This is just outpriced for many, many Americans, in addition to prescription medication costs. Uh, about 70% or so highlighted insurance coverage as being a problem for mental health or their providers lacking uh, insurance coverage. And then about 62% talked about stigma. So as much as we're talking about this, there's still clearly a lot of Americans that feel this is something that they are ashamed about or don't wanna bring up. And 55% said that they really couldn't find a provider. And I've heard this very often from my patients who wanna see someone and they're basically waiting months until they can actually get in. Uh, one other interesting statistic, about 35% surveyed said they don't feel comfortable opening up about their mental health to family or friends because, again, they may be judged. They may encounter people who don't feel compassion or give them that empathy, and they don't want to be a burden to them. So there's a lot we can do as family and friends, as communities, to support uh, those that we care about. A really important point. So based on the survey, who is struggling the most, and do people know where to go to get help for their problems? Well, 20% rated their mental health as fair or poor. That's not really a great number. And in fact, there were certain groups that were more likely to rate their mental health as poor. For example, those younger populations, 18 to 29, those in the LGBT community, those who had poor physical health, and those who had economic hardship. Dr. Tara Narula, thanks very much for your reporting today. And remember, if you or anyone you care about needs to talk to a crisis counselor, don't hesitate. Contact the suicide hotline uh, by calling or texting 988. Coming up next, the children's toy that led to one of the biggest drug busts in New York City history. Word today of the largest fentanyl drug bust ever in New York City. The DEA says it found 15,000 rainbow-colored fentanyl pills hidden in a Lego box, prosecutors say, a woman was arrested in Manhattan trying to bring the drugs from New Jersey. These pills, as you can see, look just like candy.
Prosecutors say fentanyl is to blame for more than 80 percent of overdose deaths in New York City. And the DEA calls these rainbow pills an alarming trend. I would say so. Our coverage continues right now in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 